Hello, everybody. This is Double T, welcoming everybody in from here and around the globe to the Double T Podcast Network. Before we get started, I would like to raise our hearts and our prayers up to the good people of Ukraine who are still giving a valiant fight against the evil dictator Vladimir Putin and the evil war crimes and genocide that he has committed the atrocities against these good people. Our hearts and our prayers go to the good people of Ukraine. Today's guest, ladies and gentlemen, is former Bramford police officer, Bramford, Connecticut, and former FBI agent, Greg Dillon, author of the book, Thin Blue Lie, An Honest Cop versus the FBI. Greg, welcome in. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for having me. Greg, tell me, what got you involved in law enforcement? It was a career that I had chosen as a young boy. Um, for whatever reason, although no one in my family was in law enforcement, I had just uh, decided that this was going to be my occupation and my profession. And early on, I uh, aspired to become an FBI agent. Um, took took a while to get to that point, um, but I persevered and... Um, I was successful enough in, uh, in in obtaining that goal. So tell me something. Uh, obviously, the first step in becoming an FBI officer is becoming a police officer, I would imagine. Not always, no. You can go in through a variety of different programs tell me and the backgrounds. Steps. Sure. So what they're looking for, um, at least when I applied, which is back in the uh, mid-'80s, they wanted a four-year college uh, education. Um, with three years of work experience in your chosen major, unless you had an accounting degree or a law degree, in which case they would use that um, instead of those three years of experience. So that was the the standard protocol. Um, Four years of college and three years of work experience, unless you came in through the accounting or the law uh, program. Okay. And you got there... Sure. The application process is multi-layered. Um, at the time, uh, there were uh, a series of um, tests, um, a written test, a physical agility test, a medical examination, uh, an oral interview. Um, since then, they've added the uh, polygraph examination. Um, and then, um, yeah, then the, the selections are made, and uh, if you're lucky enough, then you're given a, a uh, assignment at the uh, academy class at Quantico, Virginia. And welcome, Greg Dillon, to Quantico. Yes, 1985, class of 85-12, yes. So tell me how your career moved forward. Sure, so um, graduating from college with a degree in law enforcement administration, um, getting my time in uh, on a police department, the Brantford Police Department. Um, my assignment to the Alexandria, Virginia field office and subsequent um, reassignment to the Washington field office, uh, which is the second largest office in the country. So how did we get to the thin blue lie? Okay, so... I. Uh, while I was in the FBI, I had always, always made it clear I wanted to eventually get back to the New England area. Ideally, Connecticut, where all my family and friends were, but uh, anywhere in New England would have been fine. Unfortunately, that transfer to the Washington field office forfeited my uh, transfer options. 
and I realized that I was going to be in that office for another 10 to 15 years. Because I already had five years in, um, I decided that was not feasible, so I began to explore options of a law enforcement career in Connecticut, um, and the way I did that was to apply for an inspector's position with the Chief State's Attorney's Office. Uh, 1990, I was offered a position, I accepted it, and within several years, I found myself assigned, ironically, to an FBI um, fugitive task force uh, located in New Haven. So you were working for the chief state's attorney for an FBI task force? Correct. My employer was the chief state's attorney's office, the Division of Criminal Justice. Okay. Um, but my uh, temporary assignment was on an FBI fugitive task force, correct. So you guys were hunting down fugitives in, in, in Connecticut only? or Connecticut only. If it, we, we actually a few times ventured into uh, New York um, because of the uh, FBI's authority to go um, interstate. Okay. Um, most of our work was, was in Connecticut. If we, if we had leads that the person had fled the state of Connecticut, then we contacted our colleagues in other states or even other countries in some instances okay. and provided them with the information along with uh, photographs, fingerprints, um, certified copies of the arrest warrant, etc., to give them sufficient information to locate, apprehend, and then we would return the person back to the state of Connecticut. It's called an extradition, extradition process. Yeah. Yes. So what happened? Well, the FBI uh, always needed a federal warrant of their own um, to justify their involvement. That was their nexus. We had a state warrant. Uh, the state warrant was approved to provide us extradition authority, but for the, for the FBI to become involved, they had to go one more step and secure what is called an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution warrant. So the abbreviation was a UFAP, UFAP, from unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. They would submit a arrest warrant independently to a federal magistrate or a federal judge, and this gave them the legal authority to become involved in the investigation once it went out of state. Why would the FBI want to become involved in some of these cases? to justify the existence of all these fugitive task forces that they set up across the country. I think there were some hundred and something uh, Safe Street Acts task forces that had been established through federal funding. Um, They oversaw the program and they needed statistics to justify their budget every year uh, to show their effectiveness at participating in fugitive apprehension. So it's pretty much all bullshit. Well, um, this was their way of, of keeping, of getting their foot in the door and keeping their foot in the door, yes. It was it, 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 to justify the money. It was a bit redundant because we already had the authority to have anyone arrested anywhere else. But in order for them to legally be involved, they wanted that UFAP warrant in place. And that is where the problem began. Yeah, I mean, because you didn't need them. No, because in the proof of that is when we were expelled uh, from the task force, we worked for another 18 months without them, and we were equally effective in locating and apprehending fugitives all across the country. Okay, I'm sorry. I made you jump ahead a little That's bit. That's all so, right. So <laughs> let's go back to the FBI and their getting their foot in the door on your warrant. Uh, yes, on your sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, so we had our, 
our state warrant and then an agent would take it upon him or herself to obtain a UFAP warrant. Okay. If, we had, if we had information that led us to believe the person had left the state of Connecticut in an effort to avoid being caught. That was what they needed to prove above and beyond the outstanding state warrant. Not a hard um, reach, really, but f- once in a while, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office would reject a UFAP warrant, um, citing the fact that the, was, there was not strong probable cause that the person had left the state and was still out of the state. And this is what created the conflict. The coordinator of the FBI task force made it clear that because the U.S. Attorney's Office never prosecuted the federal warrant, that it was not necessary to be accurate with the probable cause. And he made it so clear that he said, give it to me, I'll write it so they have to sign it. This is bullshit. They never prosecute these things anyway. Now, who, who was this? This was Ralph DeFonso. He was the coordinator of the FBI task force in okay. New Haven. Okay. Um, he said this at more, more than one occasion. And um, I was disgusted and shocked that he would make that sort of an announcement in front of other agents and inspectors and task force members that included state police troopers and uh, city detectives. Okay. This was this was something I was never thought I would hear, um, and uh, where did that make your mind go? Uh, it made my mind start to now question um, what liberties have been taken with other warrants. Now, the problem is that that I faced was these UFAP warrants were only housed temporarily at the offsite that we worked. Within a week or two, they would be delivered back to the main office, which we did not have access to. We worked out of an offsite. It was a nondescript building. Uh, we were all in plain clothes, um, so uh, it was easy to come and go as, as, uh, at all hours. Um, but the only problem was now um, I could not historically retrieve any of the UFAP warrants because they were no longer on the premises. What I did was I checked the most recent one that I had submitted um, and when I say I submitted, I would write a draft warrant for the agent because they had no real knowledge of the case that I was working. And I would submit the, the facts of the case, leading one to believe the person had fled the state. And then they would adopt it as their own, sign it, and submit it. Um, I discovered that information had been added to my last warrant and that the information, not only was it false information, but it was attributed directly to me. This was a hard copy or this was on a computer? This would have been a photocopy of the warrant that was submitted to the court. Um, back then, they used to use typewriters. This is, this, bear in mind, we're in the, we're in the 1990s. Okay, this so this was a hard copy in a file cabinet? Yes. How did they get access to that and change it and put it back. No, so all they did was I would submit a rough draft and say, this is the information I have that would lead one to believe the person has left the state. They would then rewrite it, add an entire paragraph of created information, bring it to the court, have it signed, photocopy it, and return it to the main office. 
the photocopies were only kept in the office for maybe a week or two, and then they were also forwarded to the main office. So unless you were quick enough to... to actually look for it? Correct. And you had no reason to look for it. Correct. I had assumed that my rough draft... Was there. ...was exactly uh, incorporated into the affidavit like I had drafted it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So what... All right, all right. So you, you found one. I found one only because I was intrigued by the remark that the coordinator had made. And You're conf- definitely an investigator. And it confirmed my <laughs> suspicion. I realized that there was added information that was false and it was attributed directly to me. So now that you got one under your belt, where did your mind take you next? That, well, that's a very interesting question because now my concern is the more you look the more now you're going to find, and if you find more, my hand would be forced to address it, which I was not looking forward to because um, having at this point probably 12 years of law enforcement experience... Your uh, gut was telling you something. My gut was telling me something, but I also knew that I was not going to be in for an easy time of it because nobody wants to be in the position of accusing a colleague of falsifying a report or an affidavit. Um, so that was my dilemma. But um, my bigger concern was my name was now being cited as the source of false information in a federal warrant that had been submitted to a court that had been sworn to by an FBI agent. And I had no idea what could potentially transpire um, from that point on, if somehow that warrant came under legal scrutiny and I was asked to confirm the information in the warrant. Well, what's the worst case scenario that could happen with a warrant like So that? my worst case scenario in my mind was the lead that was sent to another field office out of our state, uh, the person would review the UFAP warrant, look at that information, obviously consider it truthful, accurate, and legitimate, and go out and act upon that information, even though the information was false and misleading. Worst case scenario, during the attempt of an apprehension, whether the address was correct or incorrect, someone could be killed. Um, Could be a fugitive, could be a law enforcement officer, it could be a homeowner, who has no idea what's going on because he has no connection to that fugitive at this point. He could be defending his home. Absolutely. And in which case, there would certainly be an inquiry. There might be a lawsuit. The affidavit would come um, into question. And I would be put in the position of trying to explain how false information was in a warrant where I was the investigating officer. That was not something that I was comfortable with at all. I can completely understand And my concern was the FBI agent, realizing their dilemma, would insist that that was, in fact, what I had told him or her. And um, I did not want to take that chance. I was completely uncomfortable with the circumstances. And I did a little more research. And what did you find out? Uh, of the few warrants that were still in the office, I found two of mine, and both had, again, been falsified. Um, I confided in two of my colleagues and um, made them aware of what I had discovered and asked them if they had any warrants still left in the office. 
Um, they found several that had not yet gone back to the main office. One inspector confirmed that one of his had been changed, and the other inspector confirmed that three of his had been changed. At this point now, um, we're looking at seven um, documented instances of falsified affidavits. And as I, I like to say in police work, one time is an accident, two times is a coincidence, three times is a pattern. At this point, we have seven. This is not happenstance. This is this is an ongoing pattern, and it probably went back historically. Houston, we got a problem. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, Houston was me, and yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't quite sure um, what the outcome of this was going to be. Yeah, now how do we deal with this problem? Well, you know, in, in police work, guys, it's a paramil- paramilitary organization, and in paramilitary organizations, there's a thing called chain of command. So I brought it to the attention of my immediate supervisor, who was a chief inspector. The chief inspector, in turn, answers to the chief state's attorney. Um, I brought it to his attention. Then, when the, no action was taken, I put it in writing um, to protect myself. Um, the chief state's attorney eventually acknowledged the complaint, met with me, initially expressed outrage and shock. However, his attitude evolved shortly and his position was I made it I, I brought it to the attention of the FBI and um, you don't need to worry about this any longer um, you're not to talk about it to anyone and you know all you guys are out of the task force obviously and, and we were removed so you don't have to talk about it I can't talk about it Well, you can't talk about it, and you don't have a job. Well, I had a job at that time. Um, They just removed me and my five men, and we continued to successfully locate and apprehend fugitives all over the state of Connecticut. And we still located them outside the state of Connecticut by contacting whatever law enforcement authority that um, was in the area of where we thought our fugitive could be. So we were very good at our job, um, and we... I'd like to brag that the entire time that we operated, never once was anyone ever shot, injured, or even sued. Uh, I thought that was a tremendous uh, track record, partially due to luck, partially due to good planning, partially due to the fact that we had all experienced guys working these these types of cases. Yeah. Um, Despite our successes and our unblemished record, the chief state's attorney, from, from pressure of the FBI, who did not like us competing with them for fugitives, um, created the excuse of lack of funding uh, in order to disband us and, uh, and, and um, dismantle the, uh, the, the squad. <sighs> so what happens next? Well, what happens next is a uh, reporter caught wind of what happened and contacted all of us and asked us what had taken place. Chief State Attorney Bailey had made it clear that we weren't to discuss it with anyone under a penalty of termination. Um, And none of us answered the reporter except for one inspector. He gave a full accounting of what took place, confirmed everything the the reporter had heard, and this created the meltdown. This was was when things came to a head. the chief state attorney, for very political reasons, uh, decided to defend the FBI 
um, and claim it was nothing but miscommunications and personality disputes, which was far from the truth. But at the same time, he gagged us from speaking to reporters, and um, they spun it the way that was favorable to them, and we were unable to uh, defend ourselves in a public forum. At what point did you seek counsel? When I was transferred to a remote location and I was no longer a supervisor, um, I was very upset, to, say, to, say, to put it mildly, um, when I returned to the headquarters office. I was no longer working as a supervisor. And um, at that point, I just felt like um, between no longer being a supervisor and being unable to defend myself publicly uh, as to what was being said, I decided to seek the uh, counsel of uh, an attorney uh, in labor law. And uh, Karen Lee Torrey was her name, um, exceptional attorney. We filed a lawsuit against the chief state's attorney. Unfortunately, my two colleagues opted not to, um, probably because they both were raising children and were fearful of losing their jobs. Sure. I was a little more reckless. Um, and. Uh, we proceeded with a uh, federal lawsuit for violation of my first member right to free speech. And we um, went to trial soon thereafter, and the jury was left to decide three issues. Um, was the Fugitive Squad disbanded because of lack of funding or for retaliation? Was I denied a supervisor's position because I was unqualified or for retaliation? Uh, and was I transferred to a remote location because of manpower needs or retaliation? The jury found in my favor in all three issues. All three issues. <laughs> and between compensatory damages, constitutional damages, and punitive damages, the total award was $2.7 million. There you go. Unfortunately, that was not the end of the story. I know. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, the state immediately appealed, and uh, there was a protracted series of hearings following the uh, verdict uh, based on the unconstitutionality of the media policy and the way it was arbitrarily enforced. And when I brought my expert witness in to defend my position, who was none other than Frank Serpico, the notorious whistleblower of the New York Police Department. That's a big name, man. Big gun. Um, once they realized he was prepared to come in and defend my position, they decided to settle the case at that point. That was huge. It was, it was very big. Um, yes. Um, for those old enough to remember Frank Serpico, he was a big name. And um, years and years ago with the uh, Knapp Commission and the New York uh, Police Department allegations of corruption. Uh, it's interesting that um, when we were, when I say we, me, several of my inspectors and my attorney were brainstorming who we could get as an expert witness. My attorney said over and over, we need a Serpico-like witness that can come in and explain the need to go public when there's corruption <laughs> and cover-ups. A Serpico-like witness. Who can we get? And finally, one of the inspectors said, well, why don't we just get, get Frank Serpico? And she said, I don't think he's alive. And he said, no, he is. I recently saw a documentary about him. And she said, well, if he is alive, he's in hiding somewhere. And Mike Maltrick, who was the inspector, 
cleverly pointed out that we find people who don't want to find, be found for our Every living. Every day. For our living. <laughs> and he'll be no different. And within a week, we had him on the phone, and he readily agreed to uh, support us. That's fantastic. You also had another big name. There were a couple of different names that came into play here. John Durham uh, was asked for a legal opinion at one point uh, during the investigation. He has a uh, very uh, big uh, special report he's working on right now. Dr. Henry, Henry Lee, Lee was an expert witness that was brought in by Mr. Bailey's defense team in an attempt to support his application of the media policy. Dr. Henry Lee, to his credit, really did not support it, but he tried to stay neutral as best that he could. Yeah, he's a, he's a good man. He's a yeah, very good Dr. man. Dr. Henry Lee. I had him as a, actually... A little trivia, uh, my freshman year at the University of New Haven was his first year teaching in the United States as a professor. He still has an affiliation there. Absolutely, he does. Yes, he does. Yeah. Yeah. And he has a whole building dedicated to him. Yeah. Along with the whole entire forensic studies department. Yeah, yeah. And as the story comes to a close... Yes. You ended up uh, to the positive on this. You, you had your reputation restored... I don't know if one can ever have it restored. Um, it was it was somewhat restored. You were vindicated. Yes. Yes. The jury did not agree with anything that Mr. Bailey um, tried to defend himself with. You, you, you did the right thing. You went through hell. You came back. Yep. You were vindicated. Yes. You're a stand-up guy. Try to be. I'll, I'll say this because uh, I, I have a brotherly affiliation with you. You're a Notre Dame man. Yes, sir. And, um, I mean, I, I, you know, I couldn't be prouder of you because, you know, we're bred and taught to stand up and fight and to do the right thing. We have a moral code at Notre Dame, and I would like to think that bolstered my confidence in taking the path that I took. That might have just given you that one little nudge you needed. Yeah. You know, and I'd like to, first of all, congratulate you uh, for being vindicated. You know, I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that, but, you know, it's always a good thing to trust your gut. Yes, you have to. That's all you have at the end of the day. It is, and, and, and when you are a law enforcement officer, uh, that is your guiding principle is your gut. When your gut speaks to you, you have to follow it because... They call it a hunch, they call it your instincts. Whatever it is, they call whatever it. Whatever word it is, it's there. It's there, and, um, you know, I, I have the, the highest amount of respect for, for law enforcement and the things that they do... And the things that they unfortunately have to see uh, and how they go home at the end of the day and have to try to leave that on the front porch. Yes. Uh, it's a very difficult thing. It is. Uh, it is. It takes a toll over, the, over time. It, it does. It does. Um, but I, I, Greg, I am so happy that you agreed to come and sit and talk with me and, and put your story out there. The name of the book is Thin Blue Lie, An Honest Cop versus the FBI. And if you would like to 
to purchase a copy of this book, you can go to Thin... My website, which is www.thinbluelibook.com. And there's a lot of bonus material on there. There's video. There are still photographs. There are actually copies of the affidavits, the falsified ones and the accurate ones, so that the reader can look to see what they look like, what information was changed... Uh, gives them a better understanding of what the evidence was against the FBI agents. Wow, that's fantastic. So if you want to order Greg's book on his website, if you ask for it to be dedicated or autographed, Greg will kindly do that for you. If you want to meet Greg, he will be at the Brantford, Connecticut Public Library on... Tuesday, June 7th at 6.30, and registration is required, but it is a free event. It's a free event. So, thank you, Greg, for sitting in, and as always, do your due diligence, mask up when you can, hand sanitize, hand wash, and folks, as we say all the time, if you have an opportunity to do a random act of kindness for somebody, please take that opportunity. Because if you do that random act of kindness, you will make the world a much better place. So for now, I will leave you. And this is Double T along with Greg Dillon saying so long. So long and thank you.